It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And a very good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. So, Roger, there are fears that the travel plans of nearly two million people are going to be affected by the UK's decision to introduce this two-week uh, uh, quarantine period for people coming back from Spain. So the country's foreign minister has criticised the decision, of course, saying that Spain is safe for tourists. But politicians here are actually concerned about a spike in coronavirus cases. And the health minister, Helen Waitley, says that rapid action was necessary to protect the UK. After all the work we have done to get our COVID rate right down through the lockdown, to begin to get life back towards normal, to get businesses up and running again, we cannot take the risk of people coming back from a country with a higher coronavirus rate and getting infections out into the community again. And holidaymakers already there have criticised the government for mixed messages about travel. The Shadow Home Secretary Nick Thomas-Simmons says he understands those concerns. The government just seems to be making decisions in a quite chaotic way that doesn't breed confidence and these decisions must be taken in a planned and strategic manner. And that British Airways, meanwhile, and EasyJet have also hit out the decision. They're saying it adds even more uncertainty for consumers and indeed for the airlines industry. Well, let's bring in uh, Bloomberg's senior executive editor, David Merritt. David, uh, thanks for being with us. I mean, this does seem to be a sudden event in the sense that people have very little time to prepare. But I guess that's just the nature of responding to outbreaks in different places. Well, that's what the government says. But of course, we've known that cases were ticking up or diagnosed cases were, have been ticking up in lots of places around the world and in continental Europe for some time. And so the government is facing a lot of criticism this morning for quite how suddenly uh, this measure was brought in. Just two hours notice uh, was given. Lots of people obviously already on holiday in Spain, including um, one cabinet minister, of course, who's now going to have to uh, isolate on his return. And as we heard in some of those um, voices just now, there is a sense that the government is rushing to some of these conclusions or making it up on the fly. And some polling is showing that the government's, the public's trust in the government's handling of this really continues to fall. So will a measure like this instill confidence or does it feel a little bit panicky and add to the mistrust of their handling of this whole pandemic? 
And is it also something of a shot across the bows in terms of the rest of the summer? Because again, it's it's this mixed picture of um, are we trying to resurrect the tourism season in Europe, which is so important to so many economies, or are we being very cautious and staying home? Well, that's it. And, you know, just as travel companies were beginning to see a bit of light on the horizon, people starting to feel confident about booking holidays. Of course, it's not just the people going to Spain. Everywhere else, people are going to start thinking, well, if they can suddenly change the rules with two-hour notice, do I risk going to France or Germany or Italy or Greece or anywhere, in fact, or should I just stay at home? And that's the, we're hearing the airlines complaining, the travel companies, the big travel company, too, have cancelled all their holidays to Spain. So another wave of chaos unleashed on the hospitality and travel industry right when they don't need it. And of course, there's always the element of reciprocity, I suppose, potentially, David. In fact, in tomorrow's programme, we're going to be seeking to, uh, speaking to a senior person from Visit Britain and the fears they have about how it might affect the British uh, tourist, uh, tourists coming into Britain. I suppose if we're blocking people coming back from Spain, it might equally be the case that Spanish, the French, others say, well, hang on, perhaps we're a bit concerned about what's happening in Blackburn or Leicester or things yeah. like that. Well, absolutely. And of course, you know, when we had the first quarantines, which were across the whole of Europe before the first air corridors, the French government themselves said well we're only going to we're going to force a, um, a reciprocal quarantine as well for people coming from the UK so we could see those sorts of tit-for-tat actions borders going up again people scared away from traveling um, and just remember about the economic hit that all this is taking we're already in the worst recession um, in anyone's lifetimes governments are really struggling to work out how to get the economies back on track and this summer season's not very long and before long we'll be into the autumn um, with all of these companies having made huge losses where they should have been making most of their money for the year Mm, yeah, indeed. Okay, uh, so that's the picture when it comes to Spain. David is going to stay with us, but we're going to actually take a closer look at another major issue dominating British politics at the moment. So over the weekend, the newspapers were reporting plans by the government to overhaul Britain's laws on treason. That's in response to growing fears about the way Russia and China have been able to drill into the UK establishment and affect the outcomes, it seems, of votes here. Now, earlier this morning, Roger and I spoke to to Louise Edwards, who is Director of Regulation at the Electoral Commission. She had some interesting things to say. We began by asking her if we need new laws to regulate digital campaigning. Voters absolutely deserve free and fair elections. And the way the elections work in the UK is that voters have to make a choice about who to vote for. And in order to make that choice, they need to hear the messages from parties and campaigners. Now, it's absolutely right that online campaigning, trying to deliver those messages to us, the voters, online is increasing. We've seen that in every election, every referendum for the last four or five years. And it's also absolutely true to say that electoral law has not kept pace with that change. So we do think that there is a real case for modernising electoral law and putting in place new safeguards specifically about digital campaigning. There have also been concerns that donations to parties and individuals can have a big influence, it's a bit more old fashioned than, uh, you know, tech stuff. Suggestions, for example, that people with strong Russian connections can buy influence. Are there ways that, that we could improve or should improve on that? Well, I think the first thing to say is the way that the law works for all the parties in the UK is that they do need to make sure the money that they take comes from, with individuals, people who are on the UK electoral uh, role. Uh, and that's the law as it currently stands. That's what parties need to check. The other really important thing to say about that is that we have an incredibly transparent system of political finance in this country. If you go to our website, you will see 
hundreds of millions of pounds worth of donations given to parties in recent years, where it's all there, the name, the amount that they gave, which party they gave it to. Um, and that is increasing, just by way of an example, in 2019, we published details of over £113 million worth of donations to major political parties. But the question that you asked me is more about, should a party take money from certain people rather than under the law, can a party take money from certain people? Now, that ultimately comes down to a political judgment. And what's important from our point of view is that we're putting that information out there so that people can make those political judgments. So, so Louis, are you saying that it, right now it is good as it stands, it's enough, it doesn't need changing or updating or improving? Well, there are some areas of this which we think are important to change, and we've asked the government to look at previously. One of them, for example, is about thinking, should these larger donations, huge amounts of money which have been given to political parties, come with a requirement for political parties to do some due diligence on the source of the donor, for example. The sorts of principles that are well established in financial institutions through anti-money laundering regulations. Should some version of that apply to political parties for these larger donations? There's another area as well which we've talked about with governments for a number of years, which is particularly about uh, donations which are made through UK companies. The way the law works at the moment is so long as a company is registered in the UK and carrying on a business or an activity, it can donate to political parties, even if it hasn't made that money in the UK. And that's an area where we also think the law should be tightened up so that donations to UK political parties have to come from UK turnover. Uh, that was uh, Louise Edwards speaking to us on Daybreak Europe this morning. Uh, let's take up some of those ideas with uh, David Merritt, who's still with us, Bloomberg Senior Executive Editor. David, two very interesting, strong plans there. One, force parties to do due diligence. Two, uh, see if it's companies only can donate from their UK turnover, not just being based in Britain. I mean, are these the kind of things that are likely to be taken up, do you think? Well, I think it's very striking, isn't it, to hear the Electoral Commission be so clear to ask for these reforms of the government. What they're saying here is that the current system has got problems with it, some serious flaws, which perhaps allow undue influence on our electoral processes by foreign and potentially hostile powers. And, you know, will the government take notice of this? They've been trying to dismiss, of course, the contents of the Russian uh, investigation report uh, that was uh, recently released, saying there's no smoking gun in there. But really, the Electoral Commission is saying, look, there are problems here. Um, And for too long, people, companies, governments have been able to donate vast sums of money and we need to change the system. Now, this is dangerous ground for Boris Johnson and his party. Um, It is pretty much exclusively a Conservative Party problem, this. And of course, the big uh, totemic vote that is uh, potentially going to be pulled into this is the Brexit referendum, the thing that Boris Johnson is best known for. If there is any chance that that was swayed in some way by Russian interference, then, you know, this story could be potentially explosive and very damaging for the Prime Minister. Yeah, and I'm amazed that I have to say this, but actually it may be easier to trace the money and to put tabs on cash coming in to the political system as opposed to the digital influence, which we didn't manage to get on um, to with Louise. But actually, that is definitely not within the control or power, particularly of the UK when it comes to those big tech giants, because that's that's where it, where the influence is, right? That's right. You know, and that is a huge problem. You know, governments are grappling with this all around the world and the 
big tech giants who control these platforms, um, how much they're going to be regulated. We've, we've heard from Facebook how they're um, debating um, how to control political advertising when it comes to the US election uh, this year. But no government in the world has come up with an answer to this question. How do you stop uh, the malicious manipulation of information, political messaging on these platforms, which are so widespreadly used and take up so much of everyone's attention? And the European Union, obviously, looking at this, British government, the Americans, no one's got an answer. So, you know, but that is, as you said, that is such a huge part of the problem. Um, and it is seemingly beyond the regulator's control. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's reflect on some other stories that are making the news in the world of politics. And we start off with the word obesity. Well, it's the government's plans to try and tackle that issue in the UK. The campaign includes initiatives including GPs prescribing cycling to help people lose weight and a ban on junk food ads on TV before 9pm. It all comes as Public Health England, England has warned about the link between being overweight and complications from COVID-19. The Shadow Health Secretary, John Ashworth, says he wants to see radical action from the government. We need action around accessing nutritional food. We need to ban junk food advertising. We need to give families support. We need to give people health, uh, healthy start vouchers, not cut them. And also the, these high energy drinks that kids can buy in shops. I mean, why aren't we banning that? Yeah, this is interesting. I know that we've all, well, at least me, I've put on at least five pounds during the lockdown, so I get it, and that it would be healthier for us uh, all to do this. But in a recession, I think it's going to be tough. Meanwhile, um, let's talk about this story. Over 40s and tax. The Guardian has an exclusive about increasing taxes on people 40 plus to help end the social care crisis. It says that ministers are considering radical plans, including one which would see everyone over 40 contributing more in tax or national insurance or be compelled to insure themselves against hefty bills for care when they're older. The strategy is being examined by the new Health and Social Care Task Force in the Department of Health and Social Care. Uh, the newspaper uh, talks about this, of course, uh, being based on a model that's used in Germany and the fact that, you know, if it were to happen, then it would perhaps reduce... Um, the idea that people would have to sell their homes in order to pay for elder care. So, yeah, an idea of taxing the over 40s a bit more. Which isn't really going to lead to happiness for you or me, I suppose, Caroline. Mm -hmm. But happiness in general, apparently, is on the way up again. Uh, lockdown apparently helped restore happiness levels in the UK. They'd fallen at the start of the pandemic. And a study by Cambridge University has found a proportion of adults saying they are OK halved to 25% when restrictions were introduced in May, in March rather, but by the end of May, that figure climbed to almost pre-crisis levels of 47%. Now this, as some of the most deprived social groups saw a relative rise in life satisfaction, while the wealthy apparently experienced declines. Hmm, very interesting. Right, uh, let's uh, move on then from some of the stories in the papers and in politics and talk specifically about polling. The Prime Minister's popularity has come under some pressure over his handling of the coronavirus. But according to a recent YouGov poll, Conservative Party members are standing by Boris Johnson with 85% saying that he's doing a good job. 
That said, Chancellor Rishi Sunak is the man to beat if we get a Tory leadership contest at some point. For more, we're joined this morning by uh, Chris Curtis, who is Political Research Manager at YouGov. Good morning, Chris. Is there any point talking about a Tory leadership contest or the popularity of Mr Sunak at number 11 versus number 10? Um, I actually think there is, yes. I mean, Boris Johnson is in an odd situation in that there's actually quite a lot of backbench Conservative MPs that don't necessarily like his politics and his ideology that much. And I therefore think if there is a time over the coming years where he no longer looks like the most electable Conservative, uh, then yes, I think there's a, that there is a reasonable chance that we get a Conservative leadership election. And that's one of the reasons why we put these questions to Conservative Party members to see if that circumstance does come about, um, who would win in that leadership election. Um, and my God, did we get a clear answer. We put <laughs> Rishi Sunak up against eight other candidates, and he thrashed every single one of them. The closest, um, the, the closest contest would be if, because obviously in the Conservative leadership election, the MPs whittle it down to two candidates and a, a head-to-head fight out amongst the membership. The closest amongst the membership would have been Rishi Sunak versus Dominic Raab. But even then, Sunak was, was 50 points clear. Um, you know, it had been a landslide victory. Now, that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, that he's risen from being relatively unknown pretty recently to being way up there. Um, is it a, a sense that they just like the fact that he's the man handing out the money? Uh, I think that's, that's definitely part of it. Of course, we do have to say that this isn't just amongst the Conservative Party membership. This kind of These kind of numbers are mirrored in the country at large as well. Rishi Sunak is currently the most popular politician in Britain. And yes, I think part of it is, as you say, the fact that he's, <laughs> he's kind of had an easy job over the past few months because he's been able to supply lots of people with uh, furlough money and, and, and keep, keep the economy going in these tough times by spending a lot of money and you know, that's inevitably going to get harder. I think, but I only think that's part of it as well. I think that he is perceived as being a nice guy, as being charismatic, as being good at the job. And if he can sustain that, actually, I think his popularity could hold, despite the fact that he's going to have to make more difficult decisions in the coming months. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the difficult decisions around the lockdown are also evident in the polling that you've done, Chris, um, because the public are increasingly concerned about the easing of lockdowns. You know, there had been so much worry at the beginning of the pandemic about whether British people would adhere to a lockdown and, and so on. And then almost too much. And now there's this worry that the lockdown's being lifted too quickly. Yeah, I mean, at the start of the crisis, the government felt what they had to, and if it wasn't the government, it was the media and everything else, basically scared the public a lot. They made the public really fearful of this virus, and that was useful for the government because it meant that people would follow lockdown guidelines. Now, if anything, I think the government's probably concerned that the public are still too scared of this virus. Now they're trying to kickstart the economy. It means that there's lots of people who... The government wants to be going out, going to restaurants, going to shops, etc. Who aren't doing that? They're staying inside, um, and that that means that sort of you know it, it, it's not as helpful as it, as it might be. But yes, I think it, it just comes from that level of fear. Now it has that economic consequence, but it also has a political consequence as well. You know, the public overwhelmingly think that there will be a second wave of the virus. They're very scared about the idea of there being one. Um, and therefore, you know, they're, they're, they're a little bit worried about a government that they sometimes perceive as moving too fast on easing lockdown restrictions.
So obviously we don't know what their response is as yet to what happened on uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning, which was uh, making sure that Spain was uh, on the list now of places of concern and therefore people who were already on holiday there potentially having to come back and uh, isolate uh, themselves for two weeks in quarantine. But I suppose there's a sense that if the government is moving in different ways on this and perhaps not giving a terribly clear message, and even when it does give a clear message, it's one of more worry, I mean, that, if anything, is going to back this thing. You're talking about uh, of people being more concerned than they were even recently yeah i I mean i think that the public will overwhelmingly yeah i'm speculating i could be proven wrong when we get the polling numbers back shortly but i imagine the government uh, the public will be overwhelmingly in favor of the reintroduction of this quarantine rule from spain you know the public (laughs) the public quite quite comfortable with um additional uh restrictions being put in place and, and I don't think that that will cause the government too many political problems at that level. The problem and it seems the direction the debate is heading in today is well well you've people have gone off to Spain and you said that was all right. They're now coming back and you're telling them to quarantine for two weeks. What about their jobs? Mm. What about their bosses? What about any uh, benefits, fitness benefits that they they can't get or aren't eligible for? Um, that they would be if they were quarantining for other reasons. And we're seeing the the opposition, the Labour Party, pushing um, pushing on that line. So it'll be interesting to see how that debate unfolds. And I think politically that will probably be much more difficult for the government than the quarantine rule in itself. Yeah, absolutely. If I can't go to work and I can't work from home, um, you know, am I still going to get some form of support, wages or otherwise? Um, and I, I think it's interesting, having said that, that also in your surveying, um, actually there's been no change in terms of public support, which is very much in favour of the ability to meet other households. So, you know, we may be okay with foregoing a bit of a summer trip, but we still want to see our relations. Yeah, I mean, we, we shouldn't exaggerate this either. Yeah, the public are comfortable with many of the restrictions that are being eased, and and they, you know, in many cases, they obviously have lockdown needs to be used at some point. I just think that the polling, if anything, has tended to be just about on the side of the government going into lockdown too slowly and coming out slightly too quickly. I mean, in the end, that's not going to matter. What's going to matter is, is there going to be a second wave and are the government going to be held responsible for that? Um, but, 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 but at this stage, that's yet tended to be what the polling has shown. Yeah, and it's interesting, I thought, again, drilling into some of the research, that uh, more than half supported the change in opening additional venues and shops. But it was down from 64% after the announcement, and opposition to mm. that doing that had risen by about 10 points. I mean, this is these are not just statistical anomalies. These are clearly people perhaps taking a look and saying, well, actually, I don't fancy going down the shops. I don't feel safe, even though we are all forced, of course, in England now to wear face masks when we do. Mm, yeah, so they, the, 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 some of the shifts were caused um, in the first week after the announcements because we got some sort of bad data back on the virus, specifically the fact that locked, uh, Leicester then had to go back into a local lockdown, and that tended to shift those numbers in those in those in that, that first week. But um, but but again, in the long run, it's going to matter. You know what happens to the case numbers? Are we going to have to go back into lockdown? You know, either lots of local lockdowns or a national lockdown, and if not. I don't think it matters too much uh, that the public or some of the public have thought that, that we've, we've, we've come out of this too quickly at point. So just put it into context for me then broadly, um, you know, where does this government stand in terms of how the population thinks about how um, Mr Johnson and his team have actually handled coronavirus now? 
Okay, so I think the best way of thinking about the government's popularity right now is that they're about as popular as they were when they won that landslide victory in December. Um, But that is significantly less popular than they were at the start of this crisis. So we saw a rally around the flag effect at the start of this crisis. People from across the country sort of rallied in in support of the prime minister and the government. And then that dropped off very quickly and very dramatically um, as the crisis has gone on. Now, that may sound like a good thing. Uh, the, the government's as popular as it was at the start of it, you know, when they won that landslide victory. They, they may see that as a positive. However, yeah. the one big difference since then is that the leader of the opposition is now Keir Starmer, who is significantly ah, yes. more popular. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.